Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, today is our last in the series on the family, and uh, we are going to look at, I've entitled, Raising Your Children. Uh, take your Bible, and let's just read a couple of verses. Turn to Psalm 128, this short little psalm. This is a, uh, the second of the family psalms. We didn't take the time this time around to, uh, to unfold that, but uh, I want you to see why it's called the family psalm in these six verses. As we read, this is the word of the Lord, and uh, I'd like to read that for you, Psalm 128. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. And may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. And may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. I'll take your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 6. That's our focus text for uh, this morning. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes in verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training, in the instruction of the Lord. Well, raising your children. Some of you have played sports, probably all of you from one time or another, and many of you know the value of having a good coach. A good coach does a number of things to help the, the, the team. He or she as a coach instructs, of course. I've had uh, great coaches, I've had mediocre coaches, and I've had what I considered a poor coach uh, during my years of competition. And uh, the best coach I ever had uh, caused us to perform better than we ever thought we could. Uh, we, uh, we had won New York State in, in uh, a certain level of football. And we feared him and uh, revered him and, and gave 150% to him. And uh, it wasn't until later in the season when he finally laughed with him. We didn't think he could laugh. <laughs> but he made us better than what we thought we could ever be. He instructed us and went over and over and over the basics you say that about Vince Lombardi, you know. That Super Bowl team he had, it used to begin on Monday morning after the game, Sunday, and begin with the fundamentals and say, gentlemen, this is a football. It was the fundamentals of the play, and to do those very, very well. Instruction. But more than that, a coach motivates, doesn't he? He can motivate with fear. He can motivate with love. But mostly it's... Uh, it's uh, it's fear. If you don't play, you're out. 
in somebody else has your position. Fear. He corrects. Take a lap. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And take another one. And now we're going to do sprints up and down the field or run the stairs in wrestling. That's probably what put my hip out. And then he disciplines so that the team becomes all that they're capable and beyond. Well, why do I say all that? Well, for this reason. That's exactly God's role for you, Dad, and for you, Mom. And the kids, well, that's your team. And you want to keep the kids on your team. Paul continues in this epistle, this letter to the Ephesian church, Christians there, and he tells parents how to raise their children for Christ the Lord. I remind you, this uh, letter to the, uh, the, to the Ephesians is the most glorious expression of being in Christ. It's the church in the heavenlies, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then he unfolds the practical application of being in Christ that it reaches down to the nitty-gritty of our life. If we have come to know Christ, then it affects the way we live. That we ought to be being filled with spirit. In Ephesians 5.17, we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We give uh, thanksgiving. It ought to flow from us in all things. Submission's not a problem. Then he lays down the relationship, a husband and a wife, by example. And then we saw in chapter 6, verse 1, 2, and 3, that children's, children are a part of this. I think it's interesting that Paul addresses children in this letter directly. It's the only single command given in all the Bible directed specifically at the children. And it's assumed by the fact that it's here that they were in the assembly. They weren't whisked off somewhere else. That a children, a child can even come to know Christ and Paul assumes that and writes this in this letter to the church of the Ephesians. Well, for our last message, he's going to deal now with fathers, and by that, mothers who are at their side. And he directs uh, you, Dad, and you, Mom, as coaches to raise your children uh, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, there are two directives for parents helping us to raise our children successfully. That is, that is for the Lord. Listen, success in our day is spelled uh, with dollar signs. Make uh, all the money you can and you're successful. That's not success as God counts it. You have to have enough to live and eat, raise your family, live indoors, buy gasoline. I understand that. That's true. To give and be a blessing. People that give are happy. Have you noticed that? But that's not, that's not the be-all, end-all. It's not uh, to get a great job. As important as that in, in its place. So you can use the gifts and abilities that God has given you. Or is it to have a lot of friends? Or is it to have a lot of possession? Or any of these things. I mean, when it's all said and done at the end of the road, they can have all of these things. But if they do not have Christ, and if they do not live for Christ, is that a successful life? I think not. I think not. What does it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And so Paul is going to drive home to us in the church on how to rear our children uh, successfully. That is for the Lord. And let me encourage you, don't listen to all the cycle babble that p permeates our day. 
rather listen to the Creator. He gave one book, it's called the Scriptures, the Holy Bible. God has never changed his mind. And uh, you know what? It works. Does that surprise you? In the world that God gave us, it fits. And so put away Benjamin Spock and some of these other nonsense things and open your Bibles and come to know what it says. Live for Christ and raise your children and be a blessing to your grandchildren and beyond in the things of the Lord. Well, there are two directives. It's real, real simple. Look at uh, 6.4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. The first is a negative. Fathers, or parents, if you will, stop exasperating your kids for it will drive them away. They won't stay on your team, so to speak. Do not exasperate. It's a present imperative and it means don't do it over and over and over and over again so that it drives them into anger. And they won't listen to you. And some of you have dealt with that. You know, you've had a father that uh, uh, exasperated you. Not once. We all do that. We're all sinners. And I don't pretend to have this down perfectly. Believe me. <laughs> it's on the John... Uh, on the, on the John Job training. Have you noticed that? Training on the job. I wish we had had uh, a class ahead of time, but it's like, Lord, help us here. Stop exasperating your children, for it will drive them away from your team. Hey, God commands us through Paul to stop provoking our kids, dads and moms, in a parallel teaching found in Colossians 3.21. Were we able to get those down for, this, for the board? Colossians 3.21. Uh, and this is a parallel, the book of Colossians uh, parallels the book of Ephesians. And uh, in 3.21, look at that. If, uh, if you would turn to Colossians 3.21, notice what Paul says. <clears throat> Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. And some of you know what that is. You grew up in that environment. Be careful about that. The word really means, uh, it means to be restrained, especially to dads when we could easily crush a child. We're to exercise our authorities in a balanced way. And so Paul begins with this negative. Listen, dads, don't do this in the way that you relate to your children. Don't do it. It will drive them away. Like a good coach. Uh, coach said to me, uh, listen, if you're going to be on my team, there's some things you don't do. And he laid down the law. There's some things he said I won't do. And he was careful with that. There are things that I expect of you, he said. And there's some things that you should expect of me. A very similar thing here. Dads, don't embitter your children. Don't exasperate them over and over and over. You're going to fail at this. I certainly did. You have done that. Don't do it repeatedly. Ask the Lord for wisdom and, uh, and, and so that you won't drive them away. That's what Paul was saying. You're in charge. Have you noticed that a family is not a democracy? More than one time I used to say that when they were smaller. We're not taking a vote. This is the way it is. 
And, and, and God puts the final authority on dads. Not alone, moms, but dads. Fathers, uh, your children, are not, if they're not disciplined, it's your problem. God is holding you responsible for that. Now, dads don't do it all by themselves. Thank the Lord moms are there. But uh, you, dad, are responsible to see that it gets done. I mean, the buck stops with you in the home. In a day that uh, denigrates uh, a structure and authority in the home, this is the way God says it is. He hasn't changed his mind. And so, B, parents are entrusted with the minds and the feelings and the bodies of who? Tender bearers of God's image. That's what those little babies are, those little children. They're tender bearers of God's image, and God loans them to you. Minds and feelings. Well, if a parent provokes a child to anger or embitters him, he may lose the opportunity to train his heart or her heart and form his or her character. And I remind you that the heart is all important. It is the hearts that you must go after. It is all important. The externals simply indicate what's going on in the heart. Never be satisfied with the externals. Go for the hearts. Those of you that have adult children with children, encourage them. It's the heart that's all important. Go for the heart the very center of their thinking and their values, the heart. Uh, reading uh, uh, one little comment by uh, Barclay, uh, who writes commentaries on the New Testament, wrote uh, this. He gave the testimony of a distinguished painter, Benjamin West. Uh, when he was young, one day his mother went out, leaving him in charge of his younger sister, Sally. In his sister's absence... Benjamin discovered that there were bottles of colored ink, and he decided while his mother was away as a young child to paint his sister's portrait. Well, he made an awful mess. Ink was open and spilled everywhere. But when his mother came home, she said nothing about the terrible ink stains. Instead, she picked up the piece of paper on which Benjamin had been working, and he exclaimed, she exclaimed, why, it's Sally. Then she stooped and kissed him. And Benjamin West used to tell everyone, my mother's kiss made me a painter. Would to God that we would have that sense, right, in the midst of catastrophe, uh, to uh, lovingly care for that little heart, that little mind, that little body, instead of exploding. And we have all done that, haven't we? Well, remember, your children are really not your own. They belong to the Lord. And if you think I'm wrong in that, just ask some of us whose kids are already uh, left the nest. We look back and we go, were they really here? And now they're gone. Oh, my, I want a rerun. They belong to the Lord. Well, what are some ways? I just wanted to list some practical ways in which you and I can uh, provoke our children and drive them from us. Um, these are not new with me, of course. They're common. But number one, you, by uh, over-disciplining them or under-disciplining them. Either extreme will produce a grave I insecurity in their hearts. 
And so you've got to be careful on that. Seek counsel and wisdom. Read good books. Read the scriptures. Two, overprotect them. Fence them in too much. Never trust them. Never really give them a chance to develop independence. Overprotect them. I know it's a dangerous world. We want to protect them, and we need to do that. But you can't hold them too tight. You have to, bit by bit, allow them independence and be there. Look, it's better that they fail when they're still in your home and under your tutelage. Number three, overindulge them. Give them everything they want. Spoil them. That's a good way to provoke them. It'll drive them from us. They'll feel like everyone owes them. Don't I deserve it? Doesn't uh, my government owe me a life and owe me everything? No. Be careful about that. Number four, favoritism among one's children produces this. Genesis 25, 28, we saw the, the wreckage that was done with uh, uh, Isaac and, and Rebekah. Remember that? One, Jacob and Esau, one favored one, the other favored the other. You know, Rebecca, she favored uh, Jacob. And then Jacob repeated the same thing with Joseph. Remember that? His son. And to the, uh, to the anger and disdain of the older brothers who wanted to kill him because daddy always liked you best. Be careful on that. Favoritism. Don't compare. And even grandparents, be careful about this. She's my favorite. He's my favorite. You know what? You know, that may tickle the ears of that one that hears it, but you got other hearers that hear it, and they know they're outside that. Be wiser than that. Shape up. Say, well, that's the way it is in our family. So what? Change it. Take the best and then build upon it. That's the way to be. Be careful of favoritism. Don't give gifts and privilege to one that you withhold from others. Number five, unrealistic goals can drive your children into bitterness. Constantly pushing them. Why didn't you get an A? Why aren't you on the team? Why aren't you the captain? Can't you, can't you, pushing and pushing them to achieve things that you never did. Be careful. It causes them to feel they can never please you. Good is never good enough. It's got to be the best. I realize there's a place where a coach pushes, but no one to push, no one not to push. And uh, achievement is different than who they are intrinsically as as, as your children, as children belong to the Lord, be careful about that. I think you ought to set goals. I think you ought to work toward that. And I think accountability is very important with that. But be careful that you don't push them and drive them and drive them away. Number six, discouragement will embitter them, will exasperate them. When you are constantly critical of your children, hardly praise them. I know there's some sectors, and I've said it how many times, well, I don't want my son to get a big head. Uh, that, you know what? That's usually not the problem, is it? The world will beat them up. They'll sell them short. They'll chew them up and spit them out. Uh, part of being a coach is a motivator, an encourager. You can do it. You ought to be the cheerleader for them. doesn't mean that uh, you're, you know, they don't need to be uh, disciplined or corrected at times. Of course. But boy, if they know you're for them, and then the other times when they fail or when, they, when you call them short when some of the things they do, they know you love them, that you're there for them. Don't ever worry about that kind of thing. Be their cheerleaders. Others won't. It uh, reminds me of a story of uh, the Olympic uh, medalist Glenn Cunningham. He, uh, 
He, uh, in order to become a world-class athlete, Glenn had to, do, had to overcome almost impossible odds. When he was seven, he was severely burned, and the doctor told his parents Cunningham would never walk again, let alone run. For months, it seemed the doctor's dire prognosis was correct. He was in constant pain. There was no way he could bend his legs or put any weight on them. A less determined person might have given up, but not Glenn Cunningham. During those long months of painful rehabilitation, he kept replaying his father's words in his mind over and over again. They were these, Glenn, you're a natural runner. Never quit. Run on. He dreamed of the day that he would finally run again. He visualized himself running in competition, pacing himself for the distance, pumping his arms for more speed. Months later, he was finally able to hobble across the room, and then after weeks of a painful effort, he was able to walk with a limp. Finally, he was able to run with a hopping gait. After years of pain and frustration, plus lots of exercise, he won his first race at the age of 12. And as he walked home, his father's words kept ringing in his ears, run on, never quit, never, never quit. Where did Cunningham get the courage and faith to overcome such incredible odds? Where did he get the inner strength to go on believing in himself when it seemed all was gone? No doubt God and his Christian faith provided invaluable strength, but there was something else too. You know what it was? It was his father's confidence. You can do it. What a great coach his dad was. His father believed he could do it. and As a result, Glenn dared to believe he could. He accomplished the impossible because of God, but because of his father. Encouragement, not discouragement. Well, number seven, neglect. is another way that we can exasperate our children. Failure to show them love and affection. Just don't be there. Remember we said the opposite of love is not hate, it's just indifference. Just indifference. Just don't be there. Be a no-show. Howard Hendricks writes, if, uh, Dads, if you don't play with your kids, don't discipline them. Neglect. David uh, neglected Absalom. Remember the disaster that resulted from that. He wouldn't see his son Absalom, his oldest, and finally it led to rebellion and then to his death in the tree, weeping and tears, brokenheartedness. Neglect. And finally, using hurtful words and rebuking your child will crush their hearts. Death words. Death words. Death words. Be careful of your words. Proverbs talks about words that are life-giving. You know what they are. They're the words of encouragement. They're the words of eternal life. They're the words that motivate. And then there are death words that kill and crush. The sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will forever hurt me. And sometimes we're too outlandish in the way we say, you never get it right. I can never trust you. The never and always, these kind of words, and just, they, they, they ring forever in the cemetery of our minds, and they kill us. Uh, and we ought to be very careful in that. Kent Hute write, writes, the terrible fact is, Dads and moms, we can either grace our children or damn them with unrequited wounds which never seem to heal. 
Men, as fathers, you have such power. Did you know that? You have such power. We don't hardly think about it, but we have such power. You will have this terrible power until you die, like it or not, in your attitude toward authority, in your attitude toward women, in your attitude and regard for God and for the church. What a terrifying responsibility. This is truly the power of life and death. And Kent Hughes is exactly right by that. Exactly right. Well, negative. Fathers, don't do this. Moms, don't do that. You're the coach. Don't exasperate them. Don't embitter them so that they stop hearing what it is that you need to say to them. Give yourself the proper uh, uh, instruction. But there's a second directive for parents helping us to raise our children successfully, that is, for the Lord, and that is rather than do that, fathers, parents, train your children in the way of the Lord, verse, verse 4b. Instead, it's the strongest adversative in the Greek. Rather than all that, bring them up, nourish them, nurture them in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the positive thing we must do. For children do not raise themselves, you must raise them. You know that? That's almost a lost thing today. Children do not raise by themselves. You must rear them. And it's an on-the-job, 24-7 type of thing. You can delegate, you can get help for sure, and we need it, but ultimately and finally, you are the coach. You're the, you need to just oversee this whole process to the glory of God and the rearing of these precious little ones. A, parents are to bring them up. This, is, this nurturing is a must. Raising your children, you're to take the active role. Nurturing really means to nourish them. Now in a little bit, you're going to eat. You're going to nourish your bodies. You're going to feed yourself. That's the idea. We are to nourish or feed them and bring them up in all aspects of life. That's what we're commanded to do. And Paul tells us, uh, the two ways in which, which we are to do this. You see, it's not merely enough merely to feed and house them. We are to do one of these two things, both of these two things. The first thing is what we do. We are to discipline them. This involves the shaping of the will through training. Disciplining our children. Dealing with their chooser, their will. You hear the expression a lot, break the will but not the spirit, and that's good. You need to bring them to the end of themselves when they choose wrongly. I'm not talking about immaturity. Don't, don't mistake an immaturity of a child at a certain age for disobedience. They're two different things. They can overlap for sure, but a child does childish things, and they shouldn't be disciplined for that, but instructed and encouraged to do right. But rebellion, dealing with that poor choice, needs to be, to be dealt with. And that's, that's the first thing we must say. You must not be afraid to say no. Too many parents want their children to be their friends. You know, we live in a, a lot of homes that have been broken, and a lot of single parents and their social needs and all kinds of things, but never forget, they don't need a buddy, they need a parent. And so part of parenting means you say no. 
I remember one day Sarah came to me and said, Dad, how come you always say no? Well, I said, I don't always say no. She said, well, whenever I ask you, the first thing you say is no. I said, well, yeah, maybe that's true. I said, but what I'm trying to do is back up, run it by me again, let me think it through, and I'm trying to say, when I say no, give me a little space here for a minute. Um, Don't be afraid to say no. You see? Important to do that. It's part of disciplining them. They're, They're born with a sin nature and a bent to sin. Discipline must always be given within a loving relationship. Striving for consistency. We must. But they are sin, they have sin natures. They got it from you. Our children got it from Faith and I. And uh, uh, they are in their early years or simple years, and they can make very foolish choices. And they need the guidance of mom and dad uh, through this process. Born with a sin nature. I remember at points, says, don't you trust me? Well, of course I trust you. At certain points, that I didn't want to expose them to that, which I thought was, would be overwhelming to them. And said, don't you trust me? And I would say, I trust you implicitly in every way. What I don't trust is your sin nature. It's like a magnet to a group and the negative socialization and the temptations that can come. Don't be afraid to say no. Do what's right. They need that. They need those boundaries. Discipline. The second way that we bring them up is we're to instruct them. This is what you say. Uh, This, uh, the word, uh, uh, it means to put into their mind. The first is uh, shaping the will, but now we're shaping the mind through teaching. We're to pour biblical teaching into their heart and soul 24-7. This is your job. It's not someone else's. It involves warning them. There are a lot of things that they need to be warned about. My mother gave me a Bible when I was uh, 16, and I still have it to this day. And inside it, she wrote a page and a half of, of tender things of admonishment and hope and warning to me. And I still have it, and I read it, and uh, uh, very, very dear to me as a, as a young man at that point with a lot of passion and drives and yet a sin nature. I needed to hear my mom's warning, her instruction. Didn't always keep it, but I've come back to it. You know, bless the Lord for that. Our children need that. And so it's the shaping of the mind. So here it is. We, we want to form and shape their, their choosers, their wills, so that they choose the best, choose wisdom, choose righteousness. And then second, we want to fill their minds so that their minds are shaped with biblical truths. So that they're, when they're looking out through the lens of the world and see people and see life and see the Lord and, uh, in, in, in the Word and, and all of these things, they're thinking in biblical categories of thought. We do that through teaching. That's your job. It's your job. Well, see... To do this, it means, Dad, Mom, you must know what the Word teaches. You cannot teach wisdom unless you first learned wisdom in Christ's school. It means that you and I must be growing in this thing. You can't lead where you've not been. And so it's the call for us as parents, maybe grandparents, maybe that's your situation. Maybe you have adopted cousins and all that. You're sort of like surrogate parents, and we, we bless the Lord for that with Faithy Sister. 
grow in Christ and admonish them in the things of the Lord. You must study the Word, number one, practicing it in your daily life. Model it for your kids. Model it. They'll never get over it. Never. Never. When they think of being a godly man or a godly woman, they'll think of you. And they'll shout to them. You know, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. The way you live. You know, my job as pastor teacher is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You know what that really means insofar as the family setting? I'm to equip you, Dad, and granddads, and moms, but dads primarily to be the shepherds and pastors of your home. I've only got, you know, a very little amount of time during the week where I'm instructing. You're 24-7 on the job. And so I'm trying to help instruct you in the things of God so that you can instruct your children and raise them successfully, that is, in the fear and the instruction of the Lord, so that they'll come to know Christ, that they'll live for Christ, and they'll serve him all the days of their life. That's what it's all about. And so, studying the Word, too, pour the Word of God into their heart every day. For it is only God's Word that will make it the difference. Check the text. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 to 9. We don't have time to look at that now, but uh, check that text. When you lay down, when you get up, when you sit to eat, when you go by the way, all the way, talking about the Word of God and pouring it into their hearts. And you can't never start too early. Pray for them and teach them. And, and give your interpretation on current events and how it fits into the world and the Scriptures and the coming of Christ and the need for salvation. All of these things. And then the problems and stresses and strains in life. They want to see life through your eyes. They do. They need to. And so give it to them. D, you're yet a child has a responsibility before God. We know that. Even as they come into their adult years, if they've been taught wisely and they've watched a godly dad or mom, and yet have continued to go astray, it's not necessarily the parents' fault. I remind you of Cain. Cain had a very godly father and a godly mother, Adam and Eve. And uh, he went wayward. He killed his own brother. And so what should I do, you say? Well, continue to live for Christ. Love the Lord with all your heart. Pray for your child, your adult child, your son, your daughter, every single day. God, I promise you, God hears your prayers. Effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man or woman avails much. And God just may use your death to draw them back if the Lord tarries. So don't give up. There's, don't give up. Don't give up. God saved you, brought you, you're close. That's all of God's doing. He can do that. It's no harder for him to do that. So pray that way. God hears your prayers. And Ian, final, God's manual for, in, for the instruction of his word well, the whole word, but how about the Proverbs? We've talked about this in days gone by. What should we teach? What kind of things should we teach? Here's a sample curriculum. Uh, first of all, teach them the fear of the Lord. That's salvation. Oh, pray at the, the first news that you're, uh, you're going to have a baby or your children are going to have a baby, you're going to have a grandchild. Pray for their salvation. Pray that the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of all of life, to revere him love him with all their heart and their soul, and that they would come to Christ at the earliest of age. That's step one. Number two, teach them to love the Lord with all their hearts. 
That's a great commandment. And their neighbors as, as themselves. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Proverbs 3. And third, teach them to vigorously pursue their work. Go for it. God made us to work, to be productive, to find joy and satisfaction in it, and to be a blessing to others, to pursue their work. It involves their studies and all that. To strive for purity in a day of moral impurity. Strive to stand alone and be pure. God will honor them and bless them. We're commanded, be holy as I am holy. And finally, shall we say, go on and on, but how about watch your words? Watch your words. May they be seasoned with grace. Be a blessing to all that should hear. Well, lessons for our life. Lessons number one. Dads and moms. Don't be too proud to ask your kids to forgive you when you fail at this thing called parenting. Don't be too proud. Actually, when you fail, they know you failed, right? Let's say you discipline the wrong one. I've done that, right? The wrong one's crying and this and that. Oh, my. Now what do we do? You know, or you discipline them in anger. Don't ever do that, but we do that. We shouldn't, but we do in the heat of the moment, you know. Just take them into your arms and assure them and, and say, you know, Dad, Dad, Daddy failed in that. You know what? Your stock shoots way up. I don't know about Wall Street, but your, your stock goes way up. You'd be humble like that and say, would you ever forgive me? I, I failed you. Yes, Daddy, I, will. I can remember that in my own. <laughs> don't be too prideful to, 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 to ask forgiveness of your kids. It'll draw them closer to you. That's all right. I remember the one pat me on the back. That's okay, Dad. <laughs> Number two, what about that? Strive to create a loving home environment so that you might nurture your children. That's what God wants. It's the home. It's the family. It's all important. Strive. It should be orderly. It ought to be disciplined. It ought to be a place of joy. It ought to be conducive to rearing your children in the things of the Lord ought not be swinging from calamity to calamity or crises to crises. They come up, but they ought not do that. That's a problem. There's something else going on there that you need to address. It ought to be orderly and ought to be a loving home and an accepting home. And that's the kind of home that will leave forever a mark on your children. Number three, parents love the Lord with your whole heart. Such a life will forever impact your kids. Your kids will never get over it. Never. Never. I promise you that. The eye is a better learner than the ear. Let them see what a godly man or a godly woman is all about. And they'll emulate that. They will, by God's grace and working in their heart and life. That's the thing to do. Number four, keep talking to your kids 24-7. Keep them on your team. You're the coach. Urge them to love and serve the Lord with their talents, gifts, and their abilities. Keep talking to them. Draw them near. Part of the value of uh, family getaways and things, crazy schedules and all that. And sometimes you have to sort that out. They can't be running off everywhere, doing everything. You have to help them pick and choose. Quality is better than quantity. I don't care what everyone else is doing. And sometimes the value of getting away. I'm, I know Smalley often talks the value of camping. You know, <laughs> I have some terrible stories of camping, not like you, Paul, you and Bev, but 
I can tell you of some camping in the Adirondacks with our family. But the, the, the bottom line is we have great stories we tell now. The back black flies that ate us to death. Setting up more tents in the rain. We'd pull up, my father would say, okay, you and your brother, set it up. We'll wait in the car until it's all ready. <laughs> or when the snow came one time, or the other time when a semi-hurricane blew it all down with the rain, we just laid outside and just let it pour on us. My brother had the front seat of the car, but it brought us together. It, you know, cooking over a Coleman, eating terrible eggs, and someone burned the sausage. But it made us laugh, and it brought us together. I, I think Smalley's right. The family that camps together, you know, stays together. Maybe that makes them pray together. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, keep talking to them. You have great times around that campfire, talking at night or with this or that or stories. It's funny now. The years have passed, and now we have the reunion. And they tell these funny stories about these kind of things. And number five, all important if you've never trusted Christ the Lord as your Savior, that's number one. That's number one. I had a daddy who was not saved until just before he died. We miss so much of that, humanly speaking. Don't let that be you. If you've never put your faith, personal faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day. Do that today. Don't let the day pass. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Thanks for dying for me. He paid the price in total at Calvary. Faith alone, it's grace alone, it's Christ alone. You must be born again. And let me close with uh, this little little story that uh, that Pat Morley uh, tells, a tender-hearted story. He quotes Harry Chapman. Remember that? My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. He tells a story. The salmon nearly leaped into their, on, under their hooks. That was, a far, that was a far cry from the day before when the four anglers couldn't seem to catch even an old boot. Disappointed but not discouraged, they climbed aboard their small seaplane, skimmed over the Alaskan mountains to the beautiful secluded bay where the fish were sure to bite. They parked their aircraft, waded upstream where the water teemed with ready-to-catch salmon. Later that afternoon, when they returned to their camp, they were surprised to find the seaplane high and dry. The tides had fluctuated 23 feet that particular bay, on that, on that day in the bay, and the pontoon rested on a bed of gravel. Since they couldn't fly out till morning, they'd settled in for the night and enjoyed some of their catch for dinner. They slept in the plane. In the morning, the seaplane was adrift, so they promptly cranked the engine and started uh, to take off. Too late, they discovered one of the pontoons had been punctured and was filled with water, and the extra weight threw the plane into a circular pattern. Within moments from liftoff, the seaplane careened into the sea and capsized. Dr. Phil Littleford determined that everyone was alive, including his 12-year-old son, Mark. He suggested they pray, which the other two men quickly endorsed. No safety equipment could be found on board, no life vests, no flares, no nothing. The plane gurgled and submerged into the blackness of the icy morning sea. Fortunately, they all had waders, which they inflated. The frigid Alaskan water chilled their breath. 
They all began to swim for shore, but the riptide countered every stroke. The two men alongside Phil and Mark were strong swimmers, and they both made, made it to shore. One just catching the tip of land as the tides pulled them out to sea. Their companions last saw Phil and his 12-year-old son Mark as they disappeared disappearing dot on the horizon swept arm in arm out to sea. The Coast Guard reported they probably lasted no more than an hour in the freezing waters. Hypothermia would have chilled their body functions and they would go to sleep. Mark, with a smaller body mass, would fall asleep first in his father's arms. Phil could have made it to the shoreline too, but that would have meant he would have abandoned his son. Their bodies were never found. What father wouldn't be willing to die for his son or for his daughter? If we are willing to go so far as to die for our children, why is it that we often don't seem that willing to live for them? May God help us as we raise our children and as our families grow and our grandchildren and others. And may we be encouraged. May say, I don't have children. Maybe I'm saying, you know friends and you have family. You can be a blessing and encouragement and a prayer warrior too as well.